Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is a Law & Crime Network presentation. This episode contains themes and descriptions of sexual assault, violence, suicide, and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. Your time in college is often referred to as the best years of your life. It's supposed to be a time of learning, not just about your chosen academic topic, but about yourself too. Many young students leave their parents and their hometowns and experience the first taste of independence on the cusp of adulthood. This period in our lives leaves us vulnerable. We struggle to fit in and find our place in unfamiliar surroundings. But if there was one place for those who feel that way, it was Sarah Lawrence College. I often call the college the land of broken toys. One of the school's slogans is, we're different, so are you. This is a quality of Sarah Lawrence College that one man exploited to create what has all the hallmarks of a cult on campus in late 2010. My name's Elizabeth Rome. I'm an actress and a proud Sarah Lawrence College graduate. Composed from thousands of pages of transcripts, exhibits, audio files, first-hand accounts, and contemporary research, this law and crime production uses voice actors to give you an immersive insight into one of the most bizarre cases in recent memory. This is Devil in the Dorm. According to Dan Levin, in a conversation just prior to him going to the apartment on 93rd Street, Larry told him, Manipulation is how the universe moves. It's how things change. I'm a master manipulator. It's why I was so valuable to the U.S. government. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of. And over that summer of 2011, Larry had put his words into practice. In the last episode, you heard about the email 21-year-old Claudia Drury sent to the Sarah Lawrence faculty recanting everything she had initially told them about Larry Ray living in her dorm on campus. Claudia later explained in testimony in March 2022 the events that led to her writing the email during something she described as an interrogation with Larry and his daughter's best friend Isabella. I remember it started with... Larry, like, asking Isabella to get one of her journals and to find a particular journal entry. And he read it out loud. And it was, like, one of the most self-hating, graphically self-hateful things I've ever heard. He said that Isabella felt this way after Nancy Baker confronted her about her relationship with me because it destabilized Isabella to the point it made her write this and made her suicidal. I immediately felt like I was responsible. 
I immediately felt terrible. I immediately felt like my stomach drop and sort of like everything get quiet. I mean, it just, it felt bad. It ended with me confessing to not only telling Nancy Baker this, but telling other people at the school, like the dean and another professor, Michael Davis, that Talia and I shared. I also told them that I was worried that Larry was sleeping in Isabella's room and hurting her and and what was happening. And I said that, you know, when I said these things, I had spread these rumors. Larry was like, why? Why would you do this? Why would you hurt me? I was helping you at the time. I don't understand. And I ended up confessing that I had been, like, in contact with Teresa and working with Teresa, and she had been telling me that Larry was terrible. And that's why I ended up spreading these rumors. After I said that I was working with Teresa, I named other members, like Teresa's sister, who I don't remember the name of right now, but um, to hurt Larry. After that, Larry was, like, very kind and said, I can't believe this happened to you. I can't believe they would do this to you. And... And, like, at the tail end of that conversation, it was essentially, like, you should stand up for the truth. Like, that, like, like, the way you can undo this is just to tell the truth about what happened to you. Claudia didn't come to that conclusion herself. She'd been led to it over a long night of questioning. The email had been reviewed and rewritten 16 times before Larry approved the final draft. We reached out to Sarah Lawrence College to ask them how their former dean, teachers, and administrators reacted to the email, featuring an elaborate renunciation of allegations of incest and abuse on their campus. They all declined to comment to law and crime on the record. Years later, when Claudia was asked if she truly believed she had conspired with Larry's ex-wife, she said, At the time, I believed I had because I believed that Larry, like, knew reality much more than I did at that point. And I believe that he would never lead me in the incorrect, the incorrect path, basically. And so when we would have these long conversations about a pointed thing, a pointed instance of damaging, and all my friends around me were damaging everything, I, it was easy for me to be like, well, maybe I did damage that, and maybe I am mad at my parents. And... Once I sort of started confessing to those things, each one was like further proof of all the others to me. Like once the confession was complete, I mean, it wasn't just the instance of me saying, okay, I did it. But once the confession was complete and thorough or Larry deemed it to be, you know, you had gone through the right psychological pathway or whatever that you needed to do. Then, you know, Larry would be like, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Like, this is a new step, like, for you, and and it's okay. Whatever. Like, it's okay that you hurt that thing. That's just a thing. And this is more important. So it was... In that summer, it was very positive, usually. I genuinely believe that he was doing all of this for our benefit. I had experiences that I felt like... I was getting better. I felt like this was helping me psychologically, and I just became... I became very dependent on Larry, and I just assumed that he was just act... Like, I implicitly trusted that this was for good. Good purposes, and he wasn't actually hurting anyone. 
and he was just taking more of an interest in us and going farther to fix our problems than anyone ever had in my life, basically. Each of the students had similar experiences. Larry would point out something he perceived as a sabotage attempt, such as a scratched pot or leftovers being thrown away, and they would spend hours on trial in the apartment with their friends acting like a jury, and Larry made the final judgment. If he was satisfied with their confession, they would be welcomed back into the group, but the interrogations only ended if they admitted they had been wrong. From the moment they woke up to the sound of a bugle, they were at Larry's beck and call. This clip is from a video later presented at trial. The video shows some of the young students being jolted awake on their air mattresses in the apartment. Other times, Larry played Baba O'Reilly by The Who. Even if you don't recognize it by name, you probably know the classic rock song through one line crooned by Pete Townsend. Don't cry, don't raise your eye, it's only a teenage wasteland. To his captive audience of late teenagers and early 20-somethings, the message of that chorus was unmistakable. Their lives were worthless. They were the wasteland. They were a void to be filled with Larry's ideas, teachings, directives, and demands. After Daniel and Claudia left the apartment to study in England in the fall of 2011, roughly a year after the initial meeting on the Sarah Lawrence campus, Santos noticed a dramatic change in the dynamic. He recalled what happened in his testimony at the trial in March 2022. It turned into an escalating pattern of verbal and physical abuse. He would yell at me and call me derogatory names. Bitch, trash, hemorrhoid, scum. He would hit me, slap me, held a knife to my throat. He hit me with a hammer. He held a knife to my genitals. He put me in a chokehold and put me to sleep. The verbal and physical abuse had left Santos feeling terrified, but also with an overwhelming sense of disorientation. I was confused because this didn't happen overnight, and it was markedly different from the attentive and friendly way he treated me before. He made me believe that I deserved the treatment, that I'd done something wrong to deserve it, and it was my fault. One tactic that Santos remembered Larry using was to make him feel responsible and accusing him of random wrongdoing. He said I damaged his property, that I wasted his time, that I poisoned him, that at a certain point it was, it seemed to me it was anything he didn't like. Santos professed his innocence and was adamant that he had done nothing nefarious or anything to damage anybody's property but his arguments were always futile, and Larry would never concede. It would turn into an hour-long conversation where he kept calling me a liar and saying that what I was saying wasn't true, and that I wasn't being forthcoming, that I wasn't telling the truth. Santos described Larry's behavior during these disagreements as in control and uncompromising. It was almost like Larry knew something that Santos didn't. Throughout my relationship with Larry from the beginning, he had emphasized the importance of being honest and being truthful. And I considered him a very honest and truthful person. And initially I felt it was important to me to be a good person, be like him, be honest and truthful. In the beginning, I was convinced that if Larry said it wasn't true, it couldn't be true because he's such an honest man. 
and he's been my friend, so I must be confused, and I must be misremembering, or I must not want to remember what I did. And then over time, that shifted to where if I didn't agree, the conversation would escalate to verbal and physical abuse. According to Larry, Santos was misremembering the truth. Santos said that if he agreed to whatever Larry wanted him to confess to, the barrage of questions would stop and things would snap back to normal instantaneously. Santos came to learn that to stay on Larry's good side, he needed to accept responsibility for whatever Larry accused him of, and Larry began documenting the confessions. One of these confessions was detailed in an email that Santos wrote to Larry on January 20, 2012. It was titled, List. By this point in time, Santos had broken up with Larry's daughter Talia, and the email was simply a bullet-pointed list of his supposed sins against her. It read, in part, Excluded her from my other social activities freshman year because I didn't want her to be friends with anyone else. The week of your court date freshman year, I was intentionally selfish, mopey, and inconsiderate that week because I knew it would hurt her with all the stress she had. Pushed her freshman year on purpose with the intention to hurt her. Broke up with her freshman year because I knew it would upset her and I wanted to hurt her. Did not call after our breakup when I told her I would because I knew that would hurt her. The email goes on at length in that style. Santos later explained that the letter was not truthful that Larry had forced him to write it. It was far from the only confessional list that Santos wrote to Larry, and each time he wrote one of these mea culpas, he testified that it always made him feel the same way. Absolutely wretched. Larry often took a more direct approach to eliciting these confessions from Santos and the others. On this recording made February 9th, 2012, Santos can be heard talking about confessing to Talia's psychology professor, Marvin Frankel, about wanting to seriously harm her. Um, I said that I was having hurtful thoughts about Talia, and then he said, and you wanted to punish her, and I said, yes, yes. And I thought about telling him about how the thoughts were, like, violent, and I wanted to, like, seriously hurt her. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, wait, that... He doesn't really need to know that. Okay, but what was going on there? See, by what? Okay, you had that thought, but what was the basis for the thought? I think I thought in my mind that I implied that the thoughts were, like, serious when I said I was having thoughts of hurting her. Uh-huh. And then he said, and you want to punish her? And I, and I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, he gets it. But why? You know, but you elected not to tell him, right? Yeah, yeah. But why? So you're avoiding it now. Um, it doesn't seem as if you don't know why you elected not to. It just seems you're avoiding it. Now, answering why not. Okay. I, I don't know why. It, it's like, like, the thought came into my head, and then I was just like, no, I don't want to go there. Okay, this is no. important. Are you sure that that's accurate? Because there's a difference. Between what? Between if that what you just said is true, mm -hmm. and if what you just said is not true. There is a difference in what it means. As Larry Ray would have it, there is a difference between the truth and a lie. But the consequence of a self-incriminating lie can be just as grievous as the repercussions of a self-incriminating truth. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. In the recording, Larry could be heard goading Santos into confessing about his supposedly intrusive thoughts of harming Talia. After hours of revisions and finally getting Larry's approval, Santos sent an email to Talia's psychology professor dated February 10, 2012. In it, he confessed to having violent thoughts. When the professor read the email, he was stunned and fearful for Talia's life. He immediately forwarded the sinister email to the college's dean, who in turn placed Santos on medical leave from the school. Since school was no longer a refuge for Santos, he spent more and more time in the apartment and in the company of Larry. Later that same year, Santos submitted an 86-item handwritten list of Larry's property, property that he supposedly damaged, including his refrigerator, oven, pots and pans, utensils, couches, laptop, and more. Larry had goaded Santos into believing that he had intentionally damaged these items and had done so as an attempt to lash out at his own father. Santos then converted this handwritten list into a PDF file and attached it to an email on October 4, 2012. It was titled, List of Larry's Property I Intentionally Damaged for Dad, Without Prices. You can hear them talking about the alleged damage on an audio tape. I want to fix it. You better talk to whoever you got to talk to. And you, Santos, then just pay me for what you damaged. You know how much <laughs> stuff you damaged. You did this stupid list about six times. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know how much stuff it is. So why don't you do something about it? I, I have. It's the weekend. Like, Monday. I mean, I know you don't want to hear about it. Santos, yeah. I, I'm sorry, man. I'm finished. Okay, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to deal with it myself, okay? Just give me it till Monday. For what? Oh, to get your money. Santos, you damaged so much of my stuff. You're just lying now. At Larry's behest, Santos asked his parents for money to repay these debts, repeatedly, and he eventually racked up the total in six figures. Almost weekly, Santos was going to Larry with money that his parents had given him, and these figures were well into the thousands. Santos's mother, Maritza Rosario, later recalled how her son pleaded with her and his father for sums of money, two to three times a week or more. They would often hand him wads of cash in the hundreds or thousands, depending on what they had available at the time. According to Maritza, the largest amount she could recall giving him at one time was $8,000 in cash. She remembered Santos telling her he had broken the refrigerator, the stove, and many other things at Larry's house, including computers. Maritza had become suspicious, but Santos reassured her that the damage was all his fault. On occasions where his mother was not able to give him large sums of money, Santos reverted to extreme measures to ensure Larry was paid. 
I went to see my mother at her place of work at her travel agency, and I asked for her help for this debt I supposedly had. From what I recall, the night before, or a few nights before, I had a conversation with Larry that was particularly tense, so I was wound up, so to speak. And when my mother refused, I just grabbed what I could from the cash drawer, I ran out, and then I took a cab, went to Larry's apartment, and handed him the money. I believe it was something around $10,000. In total, Santos's parents had handed over more than $150,000. Santos later recalled, I basically took anything that Larry complained about being broken that I heard him or overheard him talk about. And then at a certain point, I was including every item I could have conceivably interacted with in the apartment. Over the summer of 2011, Santos introduced Larry to his sisters, Yelitsa and Felicia. Santos persuaded his older sister, Yelitsa, to come over to New York. Much like her younger brother, Yelitsa too had grappled with depression and had a strained relationship with her family. She was an Amherst College and Columbia University graduate, but had taken two medical leaves during her studies. She thought by moving to New York, it would be a fresh break. Santos later recalled, I introduced him to her because I perceived that she was struggling socially and adjusting to her transfer to Columbia from Amherst. I wanted her to receive the same kind of benefit from knowing Larry that I perceived that I had gotten. Yelitsa and Santos were now in New York with Larry and the rest of the students. But there was something missing, their other sister, Felicia. They thought that she could also benefit in the new environment. At the time, Felicia was living in Los Angeles, where she was doing medical residency. Felicia was a headstrong and aspiration-driven woman, a Harvard graduate who had gotten her medical degree at Columbia University. In a conversation with his oldest sister during the summer, Santos said, I've been spending a lot of time at Larry's apartment, hanging out there. Felicia was worried for her brother and feared that he was throwing his life and education away. She wrote, Dude, what happened? You didn't get a new job? You always say you are fine. You need to think about the future, too. You can have fun and think ahead at the same time, dude. Santos tried to dispel her fears and said that he was learning life experiences from Larry. Bear in mind, this was before the atmosphere had turned ominous in the apartment. Learning stuff from Larry and those friends and being more comfortable in that apartment than I've ever been anywhere. I've learned more things about myself specifically, though. Some stuff about loving people, confusion, and mental clarity. Conversations between the Santos siblings turned to Felicia coming to New York City as well. She later recalled, They told me that he was helping them. He was supposed to be helping them with their mental health, with their insecurities, with their anxieties, which also included helping them with school. Felicia came to New York to visit her siblings and parents in September 2011. Over dinner with Larry and the others, Felicia began to see what it was about Larry that drew so many people into his orbit. Oh, I thought he was really nice, charming, smart, kind. Over time, the relationship between 51-year-old Larry and 29-year-old Felicia turned romantic, and they started dating. Larry and Felicia had the same pet name for one another, Honey Bunny. It was remarkably similar to the one Larry used for his daughter, Honey Girl. We started speaking fairly regularly at the beginning, and then it just 
Then we ended up talking every day, multiple times a day. So we were friendly. We talked about my siblings a lot because he was spending a lot of time with them. And then, then it got to be romantic. We really, we, we talked about everything, really. We, we seemed to have a lot in common. So after talking about my siblings, we would talk about news, science, a lot of medicine, movies, music, traveling, really all sorts of things, philosophy. He talked about how he had helped bring down Bernard Carrick and basically put him in jail. And that was, and that now Bernard Carrick and others were after him and were trying to hurt him. As he had with the others who were in the apartment, Larry began encouraging his new love interest to broaden her sexual horizons. I would say it was, I think it was around December 2011, December, January. At first he asked about how many people I slept with, then what kind of sex did I like? Who did I like to sleep with? That was at first. So at first we talked. He asked me about how many sexual partners and what kind of sex I liked. And then it turned into more and more risque sexual behavior. So did I like having sex with multiple people? Did I go to swing clubs? Did I gangbang? Did I engage in daisy chains? Did I have sex with hundreds of men in warehouses? So it just, he just kept going and making it more and more, yeah, risque. So at first it was just me having me in the picture but then he wanted me to go have sex with strangers and record it and send it to him. By springtime of 2012, Larry had begun asking Felicia to have sex with strangers. When she initially refused, he was furious. He was not happy. He was, I mean, at first he was not happy, and then he would get nasty with me and accuse me of being a tease, a liar, a whore, and that I just that I did do all these things, but I just didn't want to share with him. I mean, he insisted that I was to go out and have sex with strangers. In summer, Felicia did bring someone back to her apartment from a bar. The duo had sex, and Felicia recorded it on an iPad that Larry had gifted her as a graduation present. That same summer, Larry began forcing Felicia to make lists and confessions similar to the ones that the other students were making. He also convinced her that the people who had conspired against him were coming for her. I had become extremely paranoid. I was terrified that people were going to come and kill me and definitely was, couldn't work. I was just scared out of my mind. I couldn't sleep. I was afraid. Larry persuaded Felicia to put cameras up in her apartment, to which she complied. She thought that with Larry watching, she would be safe. Eventually, Felicia moved her mattress from her bedroom into her living room, where Larry could watch her at all times. Larry then persuaded Felicia that, much like the others, she was in his debt. She explained, He said that because he was spending time talking to me when he should have been at a meeting. So then that meant he had lost the deal that he was supposed to go make because he was busy dealing with what was going on with me. And this was a significant amount of money. In September of 2012, Felicia packed up her life in California and moved almost 3,000 miles across the country to New York City. The Ivy League graduate and aspiring doctor had just abandoned a promising medical residency in California to live with Larry Ray. 
Larry had sent somebody over to Felicia's Los Angeles apartment to escort her to the airport and fly with her to New York City. He claimed that the person was a former federal agent. By autumn of 2012, Felicia had been completely alienated from her social network. During one incident while on a trip to Washington, D.C., Larry launched into a tirade directed at Felicia. She recalled what he said. He was accusing me of being involved with my family's, what he called criminal activity. He reminded me how I owed him money from the summer, that I owed him hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I owed him money from the money that he had lost because of me on different deals in those few months. If Felicia resisted or denied the accusations, Larry threatened to bring the law down on her. He told her that he was going to take her to the FBI and have his friends come after her if she did not do what he demanded. Felicia was terrified. She and the rest of the students had been made well aware of Larry's connections to the military and law enforcement. During the trip to Washington, D.C., Felicia attempted suicide. She was hospitalized, but Larry told the doctors that the attempt was not a genuine one, that Felicia wanted attention from her mother. She later recalled, I was completely overwhelmed and terrified about what he said I had done or he could do to me. I felt it was too much for me, and the concept of being that bad of a person was just intolerable for me. So then I went ahead and I tried to end it. When Felicia and Larry returned to New York, Larry exerted control. Larry went through everything and decided he let me keep some of my clothes, but he kept anything that was valuable with him, like my IDs, other than everything else that was important to me, my passport, my social security card. I kept my license because I had to drive. But then, after that, after we got the rest of my stuff from my apartment in Los Angeles— most of my belongings got put in storage. By then, it was just Felicia, Isabella, and Dan living in the apartment with Larry. Talia was on campus while Santos, Yulitsa, Claudia, Ebon, and Lee came and went. Isabella was still sleeping in Larry's bed. Felicia was completely unaware of the sleeping situations, and she told Larry she wasn't impressed. He said that this was important for Isabella, that he was working with her, he was helping her. She had a traumatic childhood and had issues with even wetting the bed at night. So he said that him sleeping with her was helping her, was a way to help her get over these issues. And he said that he couldn't not, he couldn't not sleep with her. So he asked me, he appealed to me being a doctor and a psychiatrist in training. He said, this is us helping her. So I'm telling you, this is what we have to do. When Felicia moved in, she had noticed that the doors didn't have locks or handles. She recalls what Larry told her. Originally, he said that they were, he was in the process of renovating the apartment and he had taken the handles and locks off the doors to work on the doors, to repaint them, refinish them. And then he was planning on putting back the handles afterwards. But then he explained how the, Everyone in the apartment was so mentally unstable, he said, that he didn't want anyone to lock themselves in a bathroom or a bedroom and try to hurt themselves. So it was, so we took the handles and locks off so that way we could get to everyone in case anything happened. Larry also began referring to the group as B-52 
BPD camp. He explained that it stood for bad parenting disorder. Larry said that he had extensive military training in the mind and human behavior from different departments of the government. So DOD, FBI, CIA, DIA, Marine Corps. So those are the branches that he mentioned that he had gotten specific training from. With the three siblings now under Larry's control, he began to utilize a new sadistic tactic that was reserved for just them, pitting the siblings against one another. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. He normalized the verbal and physical abuse of one against the other. When he believed Santos was intentionally sabotaging Felicia, Larry insisted on reminding Santos exactly what he thought of him. But when she takes a shit in the morning, Santos, you ready? Yeah. Her shit is better than you. Yeah. What are you talking about? In another video, Larry is off screen, taping Santos, slapping himself in the face in front of his sibling, Felicia, in a twisted ritual intended to discipline her. Stop it! No! Stop yes, I'm done! That's how much you love me? That's how yes! 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 Stop yes. it! Yes? Stop! Stop making noise, Felicia. Come. I'm done! Stop! Felicia, come. Look at me in the face! I'm done! Look at me in the face! I Look know! what you're doing to me. No! But you love me. Yes! I won't stop you. Police coming. Building told me before when they called when I was in the bedroom. And they said they're going to call the police. They're not even going to call me anymore. Yeah! Okay, fine. I'm done. I'm done making... Please stop. Stop making noise. Stop making noise. Stop making noise. I want to get up! Stop making noise. Yeah, fine! Stop making noise. Yes! Okay! This is how much you love me, huh? Yes! Yeah, clearly. No! I want to get up! Stop making noise. You just okay, me. fine! Hey, Shut up. You just bought yourself a ticket to the hospital. Police are coming. They're on the way. And I need to go to the hospital! And why are you making noise? Keep yelling. Keep yelling. The third sibling, Yelitsa, wasn't immune to these tactics either. In another video, Yelitsa can be seen physically restraining her sister, Felicia, who is then tackled to the ground by Larry. Yelitsa later recalled that after Felicia was pinned to the ground, Larry began to physically abuse her. Felicia later said, I love my siblings. They're very, very important to me. And to have them threaten to destroy their lives and even have them die, there are no words for that. Like I, it was some of like the most horrific and terrifying things I had ever heard. I mean, even like, even what he did, what he said to me, he said all sorts of horrible things to me. But when he threatened my siblings, I just, I, it was almost impossible to take. By November 2012, the relationship between Larry and Felicia had turned physically abusive. She recalled trying to end her own life during her testimony. We went to bed and I got up a little while later in the middle of the night and went to the bathroom. I was in the bathroom and I saw a bottle of pills Tylenol, I think it was, or ibuprofen. 
And then Larry had gotten up. He realized I was out of bed. And he came, slammed the door open from the bathroom, and then yanked me by my hair and pulled me back into the bedroom, threw me on the bed, and then said to Isabella, don't let this fucking cunt kill herself in my apartment. Sometime after this incident, Larry kicked Felicia out of the apartment and told her to ask the doorman Carlos to have sex with her. When she returned, he once again forced her to have sex with other men with the requirement that she record these liaisons. A lot, most of the time, he was unhappy. Unhappy with me, very displeased, because I was frequently unsuccessful at this task, getting somebody to have sex with me. I mean, he was like, you're incompetent, you're useless. Like, I can't deal with this. You can't even make a fucking video of you fucking. And you went to med school? You went to school where? I thought you were smart, clearly not. Whenever Larry was unhappy with Felicia for perceived indiscretions, he threatened to put these videos online. On one occasion in December 2012, Larry ordered Felicia to wear her graduation cap and pose for the camera. In this photograph, it can be clearly seen that Felicia has a black eye. She said that she had been made to wear her graduation cap often while Larry ridiculed her. He also forced her to wear diapers at one point when he perceived her to be acting childish. Larry had me put it on, and then he had ridiculed me and humiliated me, making fun of me, the fact that I was a doctor, some doctor, and that I wasn't working and that I was, my life was in the state that it was. I felt completely humiliated, degraded, debased, like I was, like I was nothing. Like I was really just, like I was something, not even someone, like worthless. The physical distance between Larry Ray and the students who had traveled to England to study did not lessen the hold he had over them. It had been from England that Claudia sent the email recanting her initial opinion of Larry Ray that we heard about at the beginning of this episode. Larry had broached the subject of sex slowly over the summer of 2011 before they left the apartment, and he continued to talk about it with them while they were away. Claudia recalled Larry had been philosophizing about sex and bragging about his exploits. She later described in testimony how sex became a part of Larry's teaching. I think it sort of began by Larry telling, like, anecdotes about how you know, sexual experiences he had or things he had done. Once, he said, like, he... He said that he had gone to swing clubs and those were fun. Once he said that he was at some sort of... I can't remember if it was just a normal club or, like, a sex club or... And somehow the male of a couple offended him or something or did something some offense or something and he somehow convinced the female partner of the couple to give him a blowjob in front of everybody at the club and those are the first things I remember where it led to sexual topics Claudia said that Larry based his entire philosophy around sex essentially the more open you were sexually it was like more honest you were with yourself and that would make you more open sexually and being very open and uninhibited was like a cause and a sign of being like 
sort of this higher level of personal development and self-comfort and honesty with yourself. Over time, Larry had began blurring sexual boundaries and he didn't care who was watching. Santos later described one of these incidents. He said that one evening, Larry told Claudia to remove his pants and perform oral sex on him. Larry was standing just inches away. Santos said that the episode had left him feeling like he had lost control of his life. Larry paired off other members of the group and told them it was for their benefit. Eventually, Larry's lectures would move from the philosophical to the more hands-on for the group, including Claudia. The first one was Larry just, like, touching me, like, at dinner one time. I forget exactly what we were talking about. But it was something related with touch or feeling, and he just started touching me very lightly all over my body, like, at the dinner table and talking about, like, how sensation can be heightened. I mean, it was definitely sexual in nature. I remember one night Dan and I were on, sleeping on, actually I was just sleeping on one of the king beds and I think Dan was on the couch. And Larry came out of the bedroom and it was just us in the living room and like stood over me, started grabbing himself like under his pants and started talking about, like, orgasms and how he could make me orgasm without touching me and how he could just talk about it, which he then did. I didn't, but he talked about it, and then he went... This was, like, a 20-minute, like, like, a longer experience, and then he went back, back into his bedroom, and then I believe... He also suggested that before he left, like... Dan and I have sex right there. And when he left, we did. Claudia kept in contact with Larry while she was in Oxford, and he continued to encourage her to have sex with random people while she was there. He even sent her money for a bikini wax. When Dan came to visit Claudia during the winter break, Larry assigned them a task. We had a Skype call with Larry. I was staying in my uncle's house while he was away. He lived in London, and... We had a Skype call with Larry that, and Isabella and I forget how it transitioned to this, but it turned like sexual in nature. And Larry asked me to take off my shirt, which I did, and either before or after it, and I, you know, my, and my bra, and I was like exposed. And Larry asked me either before or after, or asked Dan before or after that. Doesn't Claudia look great lately? Like, she's looking different. And Dan responded. And he had asked us, like, sort of to, like, interact. For, like, Dan to touch me on Skype. When they returned to New York for the winter break in 2011, Larry had started renovating the apartment, and there was very little time for sleep between work on the refurbishments and the long lectures. Each time one of the students followed Larry's instructions, He praised them and told them they were making progress. But these periods of pleasant exchanges were few and far between, and Larry continued to accuse the group of deliberately breaking things or trying to hurt him. Claudia testified about an incident involving Dan Levin. The most notable occasion, Dan had allegedly done something wrong. 
I think he was cleaning the oven and he left a heavy cleaning chemical on too long or something. And you know, it, it could have hurt all of us because he left this chemical on. It escalated and Larry got a knife. And Dan was on the ground like huddled or crouched down. And Larry was standing over him and telling him he was going to cut him. Cut him up and kill him and telling Isabella, Isabella, go get the plastic sheeting. There was a painting project in the apartment that had plastic sheeting. Go get the plastic sheeting and line the bedroom, bathroom with plastic sheeting, you know. The implication was it was for Dan's body. Dan eventually agreed that he must have damaged the oven on purpose because he was feeling resentment towards his parents and the relationship Larry and his daughter Talia had. When this confession wasn't enough, Dan said that he was still worried that he was gay. In his book, Dan wrote that Larry told him, If you trust me, Danny, and stop ruining my stuff and pay me back for what you've already ruined, you're going to be okay, better than okay. But you need to trust me. I know you're not gay but I'll make sure you know it by the time we're done here. By the time Claudia and Dan got back from their year in England, the apartment was still in a state of disrepair. Tools and equipment covered most of the living area, evidence of the abandoned and incomplete projects. Larry blamed the group for the lack of progress. He said that the work would be done if he wasn't dedicating so much time to trying to help them. Dan recalled Larry's words in his book. Larry told him, Look at this place, Danny. What more proof do you need that all of you have completely broken minds? You know that I would have this place in perfect order if it was only me here. It's unbelievable the chaos you all have managed to generate. As the final semester in Sarah Lawrence began, Larry insisted everyone put all of their effort into ensuring Talia had everything she needed for a stress-free year. It was difficult to function on less than five hours of sleep and Claudia's mental health began to decline in September 2012. She sent an email to Larry that month and told him she had been having intrusive thoughts. She later testified about that time. I had a conversation one night with Larry where I confessed to wanting to, like, having thoughts, like, of cutting Isabella with a knife or wanting to throw my parents out of windows, wanting to kill my parents, and he... He told me that it was time for me to, he thought it would be good for me to go to a hospital and get admitted and take a break. Well, Claudia, at this point, you know, want to know what I suggest? What? Do you want me to help you? Yes. Claudia, I suggest that you need to get to a doctor, okay, and to a hospital, and finally address this. Claudia did admit herself to a hospital, and after an initial conversation with her doctor, the doctor expressed a negative opinion of Larry. When Larry heard about it, he told Claudia not to speak to the doctor again. And so, you know, my first several days there, I spent refusing to speak to the doctor until Larry, until he would first speak to Larry, and Larry was telling me to stick by my gut. Like, I was calling Larry multiple times, giving him updates. Larry was telling me to stick to my guns. He told me, if, you know, the last time, Dr. Brody ended up talking to Larry, and the last time I refused to speak to Dr. Brody, Larry told me, if he comes in, just turn your back to him. The violence and humiliation inflicted on the students increased over the fall and winter of 2012. 
Around Thanksgiving, Dan was accused of trying to sabotage the holiday when he forgot to buy certain ingredients for a Ray family dinner. In his book, Sloan and Woods 9, Daniel Levin recalled the incident that followed. According to Dan, Larry made him sit in the middle of the living room while everyone else gathered around to watch Larry teach him a lesson. Dan wrote, I tried to skip a few steps ahead, knowing what had brought the conversation to its conclusion the last time things seemed to be going this way, and I blurted out, I still think I might be gay. Larry's face had twisted with even more anger. That was when he told Isabella to get one of her dresses out, saying, I'm putting an end to this. Dan was forced to wear a dress, and the people who were once his closest friends just watched on. Some even took part in the humiliation. Dan was ordered to take one of Isabella's sex toys and try to penetrate himself with it while everyone else was watching him. Claudia testified about Larry's account of that incident. And so he made Dan put on the dress and go down and get mail wearing wearing the dress. The incident from there on escalated to to Larry telling Isabella to go get her bag. She had like a duffel bag of different sex toys and dildos and to go get her biggest one. And he showed me a picture of Dan trying to fit it in his mouth. And you know, this was all framed as like, Dan really wanted to do this. And this is something that Dan wanted and was helpful and clarifying for Dan. A few weeks later, before the end of the winter break, Larry accused Dan of deliberately damaging Talia's cashmere sweaters, something Larry said were worth thousands of dollars and represented Larry and Talia's years together before they were, in Larry's words, persecuted. In retaliation for this act of what Larry saw as sabotage, he constructed a makeshift torture device in the kitchen and used it on Dan. Santos recalled what happened when he testified. There was a time when he got a long piece of saran wrap and twisted it into a string and tied it into a knot and then put the ring of the knot around Daniel's genitals and twisted the saran wrap with a pencil. It was a contraption that he made up on the spot. Larry had called the contraption a garrot and he twisted it until he was satisfied with Dan's answer. Just days later in January 2013, Larry had one of the other students video record as he questioned Dan in an interrogation session that escalated to Larry pulling on Dan's tongue with a pair of pliers and hitting him in the stomach with a hammer. Larry's devoted followers just watch and laugh as Dan is tortured. <laughs> Look, next one's going to be the head of your cock. Do you understand? See this how it feels? What if I pick you up like that? I'm pick you up by your tongue. Huh? Do you think I'm playing with you? Huh? Huh? You're a grown man. I'm a grown man. I don't like what you did. You hear me? Now, one more time, and I'm going to split your tongue in half. Do you understand me? No. Yeah. Yes. You doubting me, Danny? No. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Doubting me? Still? No, I know that. Huh? I know that you hate me. Oh. Want to doubt me more? No. Mm. Huh? No. I'll bust your face right here. I won't wait till I get downstairs. No. Take it to the bank. You and I, you and I are fighting it out tonight. Man to man. You can even have the hammer. I told you, beat me with it. 
You don't fuck home truth. I spent good money to find out these facts, you little piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, listen to me. Yeah. Listen to me. Don't fuck around with lying now. Tell the truth. Next thing's gonna be out is your dick and balls. Did you like that the other night when your balls were getting strangulated? No. Huh? What should I do to them tonight? Apologize for lying to everybody right now. Sorry. And this just now that you were lying. I'm sorry. Remember, they don't know the facts. I know them, dickhead. When Daniel Levin left Larry's apartment to start his final semester at Sarah Lawrence a few days later, he was fortunate enough to never go back, despite Larry's best efforts to regain control over him. Claudia also returned to college that semester, and she was living in her own apartment in New York. She was still very much enamored with Larry Ray's philosophy, though, and she gushed about him on one of Talia's friend's blogs in March 2013. Larry has stuck by me through two years of confronting my own demons, but also two years of Isabella, Dan, Yvonne, Santos, Yalitza, Felicia, and I confronting our own demons independently, and sometimes together. Larry and Talia withstood vicious rumors about what was going on and what was Larry's relationship to all of us. Larry always made it clear. He would never abandon any of us because of what other people said or thought. And he didn't, even when I threatened to put him back in jail. We were all angry, frustrated, and looking for our parents' attention. For one reason or another, we all took it out on Larry and Talia at different points in our process. While we were living there, We made Larry and Tal's apartment such an unbearable mess that it was impossible to move without tripping over something. We broke things on purpose, hid things on purpose, threw important papers out, hid food so it would get moldy, and did anything we could to delay and sabotage Larry's efforts. Things continued to spiral for Santos Rosario and his sisters in the spring of 2013. Felicia was told to write to the dean at Columbia University and ask for her degree to be revoked, because Larry insisted she could never be a doctor. Felicia testified about the letter. He basically dictated it to me. He barked at me that I had done these things, that I was a horrible person, that I had violated my oath, that I was a doctor who was hurting people, that I damaged him and his family, and that I shouldn't be allowed to practice medicine. I didn't really think that I deserved to have my degree revoked, I went to med school to be a doctor, to help people, not to hurt people. But the time in the apartment with Larry leading up to me writing this letter, I I got to feeling so horrible and like such a bad person, like a subhuman, like a non-human, like I wasn't worth even keeping around, that I didn't, that I didn't deserve to have a future. Yalitza Rosario was also placed on medical leave that month following an attempted overdose. All three of the siblings had gotten thousands of dollars from their family and friends at this point, yet they seemed to get nothing positive in return from Larry. But to Larry Ray's darling daughter, Talia, Larry was still a hero. On April 17, 2013, Talia sent an email to Larry with the subject title, I love you, honey boy. In the email, she wrote, What you've done for my friends is the most amazing and beautiful and absolutely astounding thing I've ever seen. And I don't think I have ever even dreamed of anything more astounding. And no dream can be more brilliant than this project you've taken on for me 
a fact I never forget because I know it's the only drive that kept you at this project of fixing these people who I so wanted to see if you could fix because nothing else real could even hold a candle to this project. Look at Claudia, look at Isabella, even Ebon and even Dan. That's just to name a few. They're all the better for what you did with them. Eons into the for the better, truly. The project she was referring to were the group of friends she had introduced to her father almost three years earlier. And since that time, four of them had been admitted to hospital, three had attempted suicide, and all of them were convinced they owed Larry Ray hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just two months later, Larry Ray would move most of the group to Pinehurst, North Carolina. He lured them away from their families, away from their friends, and further under his control. In the next episode, you will hear about the experience of those under Larry Ray's influence during months of forced manual labor in North Carolina. As their leader's control grows stronger, the young people face unimaginable abuse. Executive produced by Elizabeth Rome, Rachel Stockman, Stephen Tolkien, and Sam Goldberg. Edited by Brad Maybe. Researched and written by Adam Klasfeld, Eileen McFarlane, and Emily G. Thompson. Featuring the voices of Justin Black, Arkansas-based YouTuber and owner of the Disturbing Truth YouTube channel as Santos. Paula Barros, host of Cold Case Files podcast as Claudia. And Jillian Jalali from Court Junkie as Felicia. This is Long Crimes, Devil in the Dorm. Thank you.